We're engaged in a series of messages that are addressing some of the most critical and personal issues that we're facing in the United States today, especially about identity, morality, and sexuality. We want to be as delicate as we possibly can be, but uh, we, we do have to tell the truth. Now, once in a while, I've run into uh, folks in churches that don't like these issues to be addressed. Of course, they're also the kind to usually watch morning or afternoon or evening soap operas. Uh, and I found that uh, a bit strange and a bit hard to understand. Um, if, if we can watch the lies of Hollywood, preachers can preach the truth of Scripture. Amen? And uh, that's, what we, uh, that's what we'll do here. Uh, we'll, we'll try to be tasteful and delicate with all of that. But I've got to, um, uh, I feel a great burden and responsibility in my heart uh, to share these issues from the Word of God. Last Sunday, we gave a basic framework Uh, about these issues from Jesus in Matthew 19 and sought how he used the whole biblical storyline from Genesis to Revelation to communicate the truth of of, uh, these issues. Um, In subsequent weeks, we're going to be looking at um, uh, essentially uh, identity, sin, and sexual sin as well. Uh, This morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're looking at just basic old-fashioned sexual immorality between men and women. In subsequent Sundays, we'll look at cohabitation um, and so-called cohabitation. We'll look also at the transgender issue and homosexuality as well. If you have children with you this morning, uh, K through 5, and you believe that they'd be better served by being in children's worship, that's perfectly fine. But um, we will be addressing these messages to those of us who are here. And this morning's uh, message might be a little surprising to you because what gets the media attention today is the transgender issue and the issue of homosexuality. But you need to know that fewer than 5% of Americans identify as homosexual or lesbian. And fewer than 1% of Americans identify as transgender. That's not the biggest moral problem or identity problem that we're facing in the nation today because 89% of Americans have engaged in premarital sexual experiences. That is the biggest problem. In fact, that opened the door to all the others. Because we used to tell people, uh, and and really assume it today, it's just an assumption, that all of that's private and pastors and churches and governments and others have no business addressing our personal lives. And that opened the door to all these others. That same way of thinking then was applied to the transgender and the homosexual issue. But God has a different view. We've got every right, and more than that, we have a responsibility to address these issues biblically, and that's what we will do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul encouraged the Corinthians with the hope of victory. We do not have to be like so much of our world, and and frankly others. We can be victorious in these issues, and Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He begins writing there in verse number 1, Moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as uh, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 
23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may also bear it. I've got good news for you. Despite the fact that there are so many that are succumbing to temptation, the truth is you can win in Jesus Christ, and this text is going to help you this morning. And I want you to keep in mind three words that I believe will help you. Number one is elevation. Elevation. Here in this text, we find that God elevated the Israelites really to the status of Moses in many ways, and things went abundantly well for them on many fronts. Now, oftentimes, when people succumb to temptation, really of any kind, but especially this, they do so out of a sense of need. Not always, sometimes a sense of rebellion, but sometimes out of a sense of need. They, uh, they get lonely, and they want some companionship and want to be close to each other, and they believe that's the way to do it. Uh, others have an empty place in their heart, and they believe that that is what will fill them. Others, they give in to the need for acceptance with someone that they're dating or a group of friends who, who um, uh, pressures them into this kind of experience. They have a sense of need, but I want you to understand that in Jesus Christ, everyone who trusts Him can have the internal needs met, and we'll show you from the Word of God how that can be the case. That was true for Israel long before Jesus ever showed up, and we find that in verses 1 through 4. Uh, he says, I don't want you to be aware, uh, unaware, in verse 1, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. In other words, all of them had the guidance that they needed. And we find the word all used multiple times here in this passage. All of our fathers were under the cloud, the cloud of guidance. All passed through the sea. They were all given deliverance. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Well, they, they, this is a figurative use of the word baptized, and it means they were identified with Moses, and as long as Moses was good with God, then God was good with Israel. God evaluated Israel on the basis of his walk with Moses, and Moses walked with him. And that's why things went so well with Israel, even when they struggled. Uh, and then it goes on in verse number um, 3. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. In other words, God filled them in many ways uh, in their spirit, sometimes through actually physically feeding them and giving them water because it says here, they drank and ate from a rock and the rock that followed them through the wilderness was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus, without identifying himself, uh, in an obvious way, walked with them through the wilderness. And so they had these marvelous benefits and blessings, this elevation to the status of Moses. Now, beloved, I want you to know that when you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, God elevates you out of the mire, and He elevates you to the place where you receive the favor of Jesus Christ and the same access to God as Jesus Christ Himself has. Now, don't make any mistake. We, um, 
We don't become the Son of God. We, we don't become deity. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that all the benefits and blessings that have come Jesus' way and that Jesus possesses, He shares with all of those that are in Christ, no matter how much they struggle or how often they win. Acts chapter 15, verse 8, the apostles said that uh, believers were given the same Holy Spirit just as we were, they said. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Nothing reserved, nothing held back, nothing kept back, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Peter says, You have a like precious faith as the rest of us, as us apostles. In other words, we have a faith and a walk with God that can be just as dynamic and strong as that of the apostles. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, and we have been given great and precious promises. So that is to put it this way. Not only did Israel not have any advantage over you, but nor do the apostles. In other words, the apostles in Israel did not have anything that as a believer you do not have. You've got access to the same God. You've got access to the same spiritual drink. You've got access to the same spiritual food. You've got access to the same God that Israel and the apostles did. In other words, you are somebody who can win and have victory just as they did. That's what it means to be in Jesus. And all of this begins not when you reach a certain level of maturity. Oh, no. All of this begins the moment you come to Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible, uh, the Bible uses the image of birth to illustrate what it means to come to Jesus. And so when we come to Jesus Christ, we are what? Born again. Now, all four of my children, I was present when they were born, and I was in the labor and delivery room. And I promised Michelle I would walk in. I, I wouldn't promise I would walk out. I, I don't like blood, but I, I did. But I walked in and walked out. And when all four of my children were born, they all had one thing in common. At least one thing. Multiple things, but at least one thing. <laughs> when they were born, none of them had a past. They only had a future. And do you know that's what God can do for you today? God can give you the new birth to the extent He can save you, He can forgive you to where you no longer have a past that howls at you and accuses you and He will give you something that is only a future in Jesus Christ. And then He defines the totality of that future by the merits of Jesus Christ. That's what God does and that's the kind of salvation and the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus gives. That's what He does. And I tell you, it's hard not to be excited about that. Is that right? So the Bible uses the image of birth to describe what happens to us when we come to Jesus Christ. And so you're elevated when you come to Jesus Christ. And so um, it all begins when you come to Christ. And so at the end of my message this morning, we will sing a song and we'll give you the opportunity to meet Jesus. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to sit, stand up from where you are in just a moment with everyone else and step out down one of these aisles and meet a staff member here in the front and say, it's time for me to meet Christ. I need to come to Christ today. And like so many thousands before us have done so, you can meet Jesus Christ today in this place and God will cancel your past and He will give you an elevated future that is in its totality defined by the merits of Jesus Christ.
What a joy. So the first word is elevation. And you've got to remember, you've got the same resources as Israel and the apostles. You are not inferior to them. That helps you overcome temptation. But there's a second thing, and that happens to be the examples. The examples. Now, there are two pairs of bookends here in the text. Uh, One is in verse 5 and 12. That's one bookend, and he really puts two sets of bookends between the books of verses um, uh, 7 and and 10. So one pair happens to be verses uh, 5 and 12, and then the second pair of bookends is verse 6 and verse 11. Uh, Look here, and that helps us understand his uh, subject. Look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They fell. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. They fell in verse 5, and he's warning us about falling in verse number 12. But here's another bookend in verse 6 and uh, in verse 11. Another pair of bookends. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition uh, upon whom the ages, ends of the ages have come. In other words, this is the time we've been waiting for. Jesus has showed up and he has changed uh, the age. Well, what's he talking about here? He's using Israel as an example of the intense fury and chastisement of God when His people succumb to temptation. That Israel did. And that's what we find here in the text. And I want you to notice three things about these examples. One is their risk. Verse 5 says, But with most of them, despite their privileges and elevation, most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why is it that God was so fierce with Israel when it sinned? Well, there are three reasons why. They put at risk several things. They risked their witness to the world. Israel was to be a witness to the world and magnify God so that the nations would be attracted to Him. And He expects the same of us. We're to be witnesses to the world, but if we keep on succumbing to temptation, no one's going to take us seriously, and eventually they're going to use the word hypocrite to describe us. In fact, there are some people in the nation and around the world that define Christian as hypocrite. That's the first word that comes to mind whenever they think of Christian because they've seen so many people call themselves Christians who fail and fail miserably. And that's really hard to understand, but that's precisely what happens. So they risk their witness to the world, and then they risk the welfare of their families. It, it's, a, it's a sad thing, but whenever they engaged in immorality, sexual immorality especially, it backfired upon women and children. And it always does. It always does. And that's what's happened in this nation. Things are so much more difficult, and women, in my view, are so much more vulnerable today than they were before the, the 60s sexual revolution. We were promised great freedom and liberty and satisfaction, actualization and fulfillment, Women especially, and they're struggling more today than ever. So the welfare of families. And then the woe of judgment. They, they were risking being judged by God. Now turn back with me a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians 6, 17, and, and you'll see why God is so intense about the sexual, sexual um, immorality thing. Look at verse number 17. Uh, beginning in verse 12, he talks about sexual immorality between men and women. 
And then he says uh, in verse 16, you become one flesh. And verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, flee sexual immorality. Now, did you get that? When you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, you're joined with Jesus. And so anytime, anytime a Christian engages in sexual immorality, that person is forcing Jesus into that experience. And the Father won't put up with it. Jesus has suffered enough. The Father doesn't want Him to suffer through that. Jesus doesn't leave your heart and soul when a Christian engages in sexual immorality. He's right there and He's being forced to live through that experience. And the Father isn't going to tolerate it. And so whenever Christians engage in this kind of uh, moral turpitude, they put Jesus through it and they are risking the woe of judgment, the welfare of families, and their witness to the world. So that's what they're risking. Now look at their ruin. In verses um, 6 through, six through uh, 10, we find many references to what happened to them in the Old Testament. Look, look at verse number 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He's talking about Numbers chapter 11, when they complained about not having enough uh, or satisfactory food to eat. And then verse 7, he refers to the sin of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And God sent a plague after them after they engaged in idolatry with the golden calf. Verse number 8 refers back to Numbers 25. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 failed. God wiped out 23,000 of them. That's whenever they sinned morally with uh, the Moabite women of Baal Peor. And God wiped them out. Now, back in Numbers 25, Moses records that 24,000 died. Here, Paul says 23,000 fell. So there, there appears to be a discrepancy. Uh, let, me, let me chase a rabbit just for a minute. I believe the Bible's inerrant, and I don't think it makes a mistake here. So why is there a discrepancy here? Numbers 25, 24,000 fell, and num, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 23,000. Well, some have said that Moses and Paul were rounding numbers. Moses rounded them up, Paul rounded them down. That's what we do with numbers, and that's not an error. Some say that... Um, Paul is actually talking about a different experience. He's talking about the experience of the golden calf. Uh, I, I, that's not very satisfactory to me, but it could be. I, I think the best explanation is, in Numbers 24, there were two executions that took place. There were the 1,000 that God commanded the priest to execute because they had led others into the way of death. They conspired the death of others, and they were executed. That was about 1,000. And then there were 23,000 that God himself executed on the spot. And that's the number to which Paul refers here. Now, folks, you, you need to understand, what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a New Testament passage. It would be enough to read an Old Testament passage. It would be. That, that would be applicable because of verse number 6 and verse number 11. These were written for our admonition. But please do not underestimate. Please do not underestimate 
the justice and the holiness of God and the high expectations He expects of His people when it comes to moral behavior. Please don't do it. What He says here in verse number 8 is there on purpose in one day 23,000 fell. And I, I don't know. It could be. Well, he picks up on this in the next chapter with the Lord's Supper that many of the people are struggling with sickness and even some with death because they came with impurity to the Lord's Supper. I wonder how much sickness and how much death, how much confusion in churches can be explained with open un, or hidden unrepentant sin. These were written for our instruction. In verse number 9, look what he says there. Nor let us tempt Christ, if some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. He's referring to Numbers 21, and they complained there against Moses and Aaron, and God sent the fiery serpents against them. Then verse number 10, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's Numbers 14, because the spies went in to spy out the land, Twelve of them did. Ten of them came back with a discouraging report because they didn't trust God. Only Joshua and Caleb came back with a faithful report is what you find here. And so over and over again, we find in this text that they fail. God was not well pleased. We find the word destroy three times. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, He who stiffens his neck after much reproof shall be broken suddenly and that without remedy. Now you think, oh my goodness. If you just knew how I'd messed up. But listen to me. Hold on. That text is very, very specific. And it, it's very, very clear with Israel. He who stiffens his neck after much reproof. What does it mean to stiffen your neck? Well, it means to get arrogant, to get stubborn with God. Right? Listen to me carefully. If you will walk humbly with God, you may struggle with these issues. But if you will walk humbly with God, you will meet grace every time you come before Him. You just keep walking with Him in humility. You relapse, you struggle, just come back to Him real quickly. Stay humble before God. But if you get arrogant, you start trying to revise what the Bible says. You start trying to redefine His expectations for sexual morality. You've stiffened your neck and all the warnings of Scripture are directed specifically at you. Now, most Baptists and most Baptist churches I know of don't have that problem. But just in case, do not redefine what the Word of God says. Do not invent your own ways of handling this. Stay humble before God, because these things were written for our instruction. In fact, I want to say to you, if you're struggling with one of these issues that we've talked about, I want to assure you, you are in the right place today. This is where you're supposed to be. And we, if, if you'll walk humbly, we want you here. You've got to behave. But if you will walk humbly, you stay here, stay with it, until you have victory, until you overcome. And we would want to walk with you. And that's what this church is all about. Now, you need to understand, we're, we're not going to affirm immoral behavior. We're not going to do that. But I want to assure you, when you take into account how you've been created, when you take into account the witness of Jesus Christ, when you take into the account that finally one day we've all got to stand before God in judgment, listen to me. The best friends you've got are in churches like this who will tell you the truth and walk patiently with you as you seek to overcome and have victory like so many others have. And, and you're not alone. You're not alone, let me assure you. You're not alone at all. 
But we are the best friends you've got. The best friends you've got are not those who will tell you that that kind of behavior is okay. That, that God is all accepting and God really doesn't care what you do. Those aren't your best friends. Now, they may be well-motivated. They may be sincere. They may love you. But, friend, they are terribly misguided. And they're not thinking about the final day when we've all got to give an account before God. The best friends you've got are in a place like this. And you are in the right place today if you are struggling. And we want you here. Now, I want to drive this home a little bit further. If you're weak and struggling, as long as you stay humble before God, you're going to meet grace every time. But if you're weak and stubborn and proud, this text warns of chastisement from God. And I would drive this home with a little note that uh, Sarah Kate wrote this past week to the dictator of North Korea. <laughs> she wrote, Dear North Korea, You've just managed to assemble a crude, low-yield nuclear device 70 years after the U.S. has stockpiled over 2,000 nuclear warheads, and your plan is to attack this country? <laughs> if you walk humbly with God, you, you, God is your best friend. But if you get arrogant and stubborn, start trying to revise the Bible, you are taking on God. And you need to be very, very careful. That's what these examples are. Now, here's the relevance. Look at verse 12. We've seen their risk, and we have seen their ruin. Now look at their relevance. Verse number 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. <laughs> Noah isn't off the ark, but uh, a little while before he gets drunk and sins to the disaster and ruin of his family. If Noah could not escape temptation. Truth is, we won't either. Now, you can't help being tempted most of the time. Martin Luther said, you can't help if birds fly over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Okay. And so you can't help that. But Noah, if he fell, any of us can. So listen to me. Don't ever say, it can't happen to me. Don't ever say that. Because the moment you say, it can't happen to me, it probably will. And you've got to be extremely careful. So that's the relevance of this. So, so walk a little scared of falling into temptation. So keep their risk and their ruin and relevance in mind when you face it. But there's a third thing I want you to notice, and that is the escape. Chapter 10, verse 13. And frankly, for new Christians, this is one of the first verses many of them memorize. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God gives an escape when you face temptation. It's common. Uh, every temptation that comes across is common to others. So you can be encouraged. Others have won. And you're not inferior to them when it comes to your walk with God. If you trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've got the same resources as all the others. And they've overcome, and you can overcome as well. These are common. And then they're timely. God gives you the escape with, the text says, with the temptation. The moment the temptation comes, what accompanies it is God's escape. And we'll talk about some of those in just a moment. And then they're practical. You can endure it. These are not merely theoretical. You can endure 
the temptation. So how do I escape? Let me give you several things. One is to wake up. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus said, Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. In Genesis 4, 7, God warned Cain, Sin crouches at the door. You and I are living in a world where sin is crouching at the door. You've got to walk aware and not naive that these things are real and crouching and seeking to bring you down. So wake up. Then pray up. Matthew 6.13, Jesus said for us to pray that, God, that we would not be led into temptation, but that God would deliver us from evil. Well, I've prayed a million times. You've got to get before God and with sobs and heart cries and energy and passion before God, plead with Him to help you have victory. But then you also need to grow up. Titus 2.6 says, teach young men to think soberly. As delicately as I can be, you need to understand, sex is not the be-all and end-all of human life. Not even in marriage. It's one-twelfth of marriage. Otherwise, there's bill paying, there's child raising, there's fighting termites, there's cutting, there's so many other responsibilities that go with it. And you've got to understand, a mature marriage really doesn't focus intently, intensely on that. It's one-twelfth. It's a great one-twelfth, but you've got to understand, you've got to be sober-minded about these things. Grow up, then clean up. Psalms 101, verse 3, David said, I will not set any evil thing before my eyes. One of the reasons some people keep dealing with this over and over again is that they're fomenting it by the things they watch and the things they listen to. I had a uh, friend the other day, he and I were talking about a friend we went to uh, college with, and you may have seen his tragic story in the papers. Uh, the last few weeks, he uh, got caught um, in a um, morally disastrous situation. He was an associate pastor at a church in Houston, and he and I were talking, and as soon as I saw it and the news broke, I called him because the two of them are best friends, and when I called him, he was in Houston helping this friend. He's from Gainesville, Georgia, and I talked with him, and he called me uh, back, and we've had several conversations back and forth about the situation and the mutual friend, and he told me he said, you know, this caused me, as I was dealing with this best friend of mine that I grew up with in Louisiana and have walked closely with all these years, it taught me to be very, very guarded. And he said, David, you've got to understand, Osi and I, his wife's name is Osi, he said, we don't watch rated R movies. We, we don't look at these kinds of things. We don't do these kinds of things because we want to guard our heart. Can I tell you something? There is almost absolutely no justification for watching any flesh on the screen and to pay for it it's not good for your heart it's not good for your soul and I don't mean to be legalistic or anything but the truth is you can't put that junk before your eyes and keep fomenting that and not struggle with lust and once you get it in your heart you will find a way unless you root it out you'll find a way to get it into your life clean up I will set no evil thing before my eyes then break up Break up. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Your dating relationship gets a little too far and gets too physical. It may be time to break up. Listen to me. Every person you date, you'll break up with. Except the one you marry. Now think about that. Do you really want to get involved with someone that deeply and intimately only to know you're going to break up with them? 
And then when you get married, you're going to have to explain that. Because if you don't, it's going to come out. Break up. In other words, it gets too far. You say, see you later, maybe never, and go on. (laughs) Bad company corrupts good morals. And then, as a Christian, what kind of impact are you having on that person's spiritual life? Is that good for that person? What are you doing to them? Then, sit up. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? I'd like that superpower, by the way, but nobody can do it. Can a man take fire and not be burned? Geometry will help you. And I want to be delicate, and I don't mean to be funny here, but geometry can help you in your dating relationship. Okay? Always keep your back perpendicular to the floor. Never parallel. Am I clear? Are we communicating? There is no need to do that. Always, always, always keep your back perpendicular to the floor. Then finally, team up. Ecclesiastes 4, 8 through 12 says that two are better than one and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Don't be alone. There's nothing beneficial to a dating relationship when you're alone. Nothing at all. Because in married life, you're really never alone. You really never are. There's always somebody somewhere. You see, and how you interact in groups like that is really a great tell about the maturity of a person and whether they are worthy to consider uh, for future relationships. So really being alone only happens when you're dating and probably shouldn't happen very much at all. You can triumph, however, over temptation because God provides multiple escapes at the time of temptation and many of God's people have taken advantage of them. You can be a winner. There was a prisoner on death row who was about to be executed and he would not allow his attorney to file any appeals or any motions to delay the execution or overturn the verdict. He felt terribly, terribly guilty over the crime he had committed. He had murdered someone in the course of a robbery. And when asked about why he wouldn't let his attorney uh, appeal or try to get his conviction overturned, he says, death is my way of escape from the living hell I'm living in. He was so overcome with guilt, so overcome with guilt, that he believed only death would release him from it. That's how guilty he felt. Carl Menninger, the great uh, psychiatrist of another generation, wrote in his book, Whatever Became of Sin, that there was a man, strangely enough, in downtown Chicago in a very busy area that would stand on the corner and stand stiff and then after a few moments would blurt out and point to someone and say, guilty! And then he'd stiffen up again and then cry out, guilty! And one witness who later told Larry Moyer this story said, I was with one man and this man standing stiff pointed at him and said, guilty! And the man looked at him and said, how did he know? Whatever it may be, if you stand guilty before God today, and all of us have at some point or another, there is a way for God to cleanse you. And God is real serious about this. God is extremely serious about cleansing you and making you right with Him, and restoring you, and then walking with you. And He's done that 
by slaughtering his own son at the cross. God, you know, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And did, did he approve of that? Well, of course he did. He raised Jesus from the dead. And so he's alive. And you don't have to walk in this life with piles and barnacles and scales of guilt. You can walk with Jesus in purity and in holiness. God is willing to do that for you because he loves you. And he's willing to elevate you and give you the same love and access and favor that his own dear son has. I hope you'll take advantage of it today. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing, I want you to step up from where you are, march down this aisle, and uh, talk with one of our staff members and say, it's time for me to meet Jesus. Now, let me say something real quick. With the topic we've spoken about today, um, you need to understand, we're not going to assume if you come forward today that you have a problem with this topic. All right. A lot of times when people come forward, they made the, the decision the previous week and, and they go ahead and come. Okay? And we won't assume that um, you're coming because you have a problem with this topic today. All right? uh, we, we, we don't make those kind of connections. A lot of folks make a decision the week before and they just come no matter what the preacher preaches about. So you go ahead and come. Others of you, God has spoken to your heart and you need to be part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. Let me promise you, as difficult as this subject is, we're going to preach the word here. Um, and I'm following a long tradition of that, especially with my predecessor. We'll preach and teach the Bible, and we promise you we'll go by the Word of God, and we won't bend, as we've been doing for decades now. So you come as God leads you and moves you. Maybe God's calling you to ministry or missionary service, and you need to announce that to the church, and you need to rally and marshal their prayers. We want to help you with that as well. So let's stand together real quickly, and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of the Word, and I praise you for being so good and so kind to us. Father, would you come through with the power of the Holy Spirit and do a neat work in people's lives. Some need to be changed and transformed by the grace of God. Some need to meet Jesus. Some need to become part of Beach Haven. Some may need to take a step into ministry or missionary service. And God, I want to pray that you will help them take that step. Pray that you'd make this time fruitful and magnify Christ in these moments. That's why we give it to you and that's why we pray. That's why we do what we do, oh God. And I want to pray that you will magnify his name in these moments. And we're going to sing in just a moment. You come. Staff will be here. You make that decision for Christ. I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Dear God, would you gather all the glory of Jesus Christ that you desire in these moments and may every heart, soul, and mouth glorify him now. In Jesus' name.